are here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 23 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Bitcoin hits even further highs as critics get their predictions in for 2018. Crypto kitties take over the world. And we recorded an exclusive interview with the CEO of R3, the one and only David Rutter. On with the news. Okay, joining me for the news is the one and only Colin G. Platt. The GSAS himself is back in the house. How was your world tour? It was excellent. I am still super jet-lagged. It feels like it's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's fantastic. Um, but I'm happy to say when you say we are here, I am actually here. Yeah, we are both here. Uh, and you have an annoying amount of tan. That's really irritating. I, it's, it's cold and dark in London. I don't know what you guys did when I was gone, but I don't like it at all. Somebody turned off the light. Um, but i got to remind our listeners that today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Uh, Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners. It's ready to build on today and the financial community is already deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with the platform selected by the world's largest institutions, Corda. Go to Corda.net to learn more. All right, Colin. Let's do this. It's time to bring back the news. And I think the first story, uh, well, everyone said it was a bubble. It may still be a bubble, but Bitcoin's hit yet another high. Or has the momentum gone? You know, I, I see people speculating the momentum is gone. Um, the prices are, are going up, up, up. We're recording this. So they're about 12,000 US. So we're just, just approaching 10,000 euros uh, if you're based on the continent. Um, it, it could keep going. It may not. We'll see. There's a lot of uh, interesting things coming up, which we're going to kind of get into here in just a second. Um, but uh, as things stand, I don't know that the momentum's quite gone yet. There's a story here on CNBC that says um, Bitcoin exchange Coinbase has more users than stockbroker Schwab. Like, that's pretty significant. So as Charles Schwab reported 10.6 million active brokerages accounts for October in contrast with 11.7 million users in October for Coinbase, which is the leading US platform for buying and selling Bitcoin. That's really significant. Uh, and apparently Coinbase are now much closer to 13.5, um, adding 300,000 users a week. I mean, is this falls rushing in? Is this a real moment of scale? It's an interesting inflection point, if nothing else. And it, will it be a flash in the pan? Yeah. So the question I have here is, uh, it's fantastic. They're big numbers. And this is just one company of the whole blockchain Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, so it's great to see that they're having a lot more users. What I would caution is, is particular on looking at Charles Schwab because Setting up a Coinbase account is free. Uh, you don't have to put anything in. Um, whereas going to Charles Schwab, it's free to set up, but you still have to have a minimum amount of money on that account. So effectively, you have to put money in. Um, Coinbase, I could set up a thousand accounts if I wanted to. Yeah, it's apples to oranges. And how many people have struggled to get through the KYC and um, maybe set up three or four accounts? And sometimes it makes sense to set up a lot of accounts, especially um, when you've got the IRS and other tax authorities starting to look at the space a little bit. And that was the next story uh, from The Verge, where it says, despite record amounts of users, Coinbase has had to report some of its users to the Inland Revenue Service uh, after a lawsuit defeat. So what's this about? So uh, the IRS in the U.S., the, the tax authority, um, 
last year put out um, a request to receive information from Coinbase. They had speculated because they only had about 900 people per year filing saying uh, they had made any money out of Bitcoins. They had heard all of this uh, noise from Coinbase adding in fantastic numbers of users, 300,000 a week now. Um, and uh, they rightfully asked why that might be happening. Um, they called up Coinbase quite nicely and asked for these things uh, and said, we'd like to see all these, this information. Um, something they're, I think, pretty used to getting yeses to really quick. Uh, Coinbase turned around and said, no, you need a subpoena. They pushed us back in court. Uh, the court has finally come around and agreed with the IRS that they need to hand this information over for anybody that's had uh, between the year 2013 and 2015 more than $20,000 uh, in equivalent at the time. Uh, so the IRS can check it out to make sure everybody's reporting what they should. The line here from the story is anyone moving more than $20,000 on the platform. What does moving more than $20,000 on the platform really mean? Because is that um, I've uh, transacted backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Does that mean my net gain is $20,000? What does moving it mean? Has that been defined? I, I don't think it was very clear in here. I'm sure it was quite clear in the, the information that was sent to Coinbase. But uh, as it said, it's just uh, bought, sold, sent, received more than that. It could be I've sent $1 20,000 times. Mm -hmm more likely they're just going to filter out the things where they actually had high value uh, money in. Uh, do bear in mind in the US that um, cryptocurrencies are not uh, like currencies. They're taxed at any point. So if I if I buy Bitcoin at a thousand, hold on to it and sell a little bit to buy a cup of coffee, I need to report that I bought that cup of coffee uh, with a profit in it uh, baked into whatever the going market price is. So it's quite complex. Um, I don't know how everybody's going to get their head around it, even if they want to report their their Bitcoin profits correctly. It's very difficult in the US. I think um, God bless Jerry Brito and the guys at Coin Center. They've got a heck of a job uh, kind of helping people understand the, the complex animal that is Bitcoin, um, especially when its price has gone from maybe $1,000 to $10,000 and you were just just this year alone. Uh, that's That's really, kind of insane but there is something about just like pay your taxes people like i i know that there's a lot of the bitcoin community that are like no screw the tax man tax is theft and all this kind of stuff but like do you really want to take on governments and and also do you want bitcoin to cross over and really reinvent finance because the crypto asset space it to my mind has the possibility of maybe starting to possibly threaten to really make a difference don't be a dick. I agree. Don't be a dick. Um, two things I'd, I'd add to that is, as I said, it is very complicated if you want to do things correctly. And let's go back to the very beginnings of what Bitcoin was and who bought into it. Uh, these are generally people who were cypherpunks. Uh, they did not like the idea of government controlling different aspects of what happens uh, in the world and particularly on the internet. And they've used things like uh, cryptocurrency and cryptography to help protect things that they saw as their their rights and liberties. And that gained a big, um, big section of the libertarian community in the US, a lot of whom have issues with how taxes are, are used, how they're levied. Um, so I, I'm not overly surprised if there is a large contingent of US citizens who happen to be of that mind, who aren't paying their taxes or reporting their taxes as the IRS says it should be. And when it's as complex as you say, it's, it's non-trivial to report your taxes. I've spoken to, to some people in, in some different governments who said, you know, what should our tax policy be? And this, this crypto asset animal is, is quite difficult. Um, but just kind of linking, bringing this all the way back around, you know, it, it's been a story for a couple of weeks now, this whole Bitcoin space and the price explosion. Do we have the driver here and what's happening with CME and SIBO beginning their Bitcoin futures trading? I know um, CME Group have revealed that they'll have their first product offerings from 
December 18th. From December 18th. And actually surprised that we just heard yesterday morning, I believe, or I, I don't know what time zone I was. So it could have been two days ago. Um, on the 10th. So this weekend, uh, the SIBO will actually be launching their, their futures contract. Um, they wanted to be first ones out of the gate and beat CME. They were first on the announcements. Um, and, uh, it looks like they've come around and said, we're ready. Uh, lots of big questions about what this is going to do. People are speculating that, um, these futures contracts, which are, um, essentially an ability for parties to trade at some point, uh, fixed in, in the future, as the name would suggest, uh, based on whether the price goes up or down. So, um, let's say the price is 12,000 today. Um, at the 30th of December, if it goes up, I pay you money. If it goes down, you pay me money. Um, and this is regulated through very big exchanges and clearinghouses like the CME and the SIBO. Um, and it's purely on the Bitcoin price, which is new. Um, why this is really important is this is where every major bank and every hedge fund and every asset manager has to go through to trade things like S&P 500 futures or interest rate uh, swaps that are cleared. They go through these entities. And futures are considered useful because it gives you some price certainty, right? So um, I want to buy an S&P uh, 500 future or interest rate swaps. I want to buy some currency, but I want to know what price I'm going to get for my currency in six to 12 months. So it gives me that additional price certainty. And the Bitcoin market, that's really hard, but it also kind of gives you some forward guidance as to actually where's this market headed uh, and which could be could be interesting so do you think this is driving the price growth in bitcoin that people are excited by the gradual creeping legitimization of the bitcoin space and what do you think happens next just crystal ball time well crystal ball i i think that this is a big step in uh, talking about gradual creeping legitimization uh to me this is a big slap in the face and we're here um as of the 10th of december uh one of the biggest exchanges in the world is trading something that has existed on this planet for less than nine years and was invented by a anonymous character. That's insane. That sounds like a long time when I, I heard some statistic that SMS has only been around 25 years. So this is a good chunk of the way there. Um, why, why are we talking about this thing? Why are we trading it? And now that it's on an exchange, it's not, it's coming, it's coming, it's here. Today, Bitcoin is going to be on the largest exchanges within a week. And Chicago has this track record of breaking new products and, and financial innovation. This this could be it. But surely that's not the end of the story. Like Bitcoin's arrived, but it's still a bit of a mess, right? What else is missing from the Bitcoin market for large scale hedge funds and family offices? Because there are funds popping up all over all the time, but managing this Bitcoin thing is really hard. It forks all the time. Uh, you've got to have a cold storage wallet. You've got to really make sure that your processes are in place when it happens. What, what, what do you actually do? Well, yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of big things. If we look at traditional financial markets, commodity markets, which are probably more similar to a lot of these, um, and the first thing is, how do you custody these? How do you hold them and make sure that they don't disappear? Um, and, and that's really tricky when you're talking about money that is supposed to be easy to hold with a password. Um, some companies have started to offer services around it, but they're very expensive when you compare them uh, with what happens in traditional markets, which is odd considering you're only holding a password. Um, but there are a lot of risks in holding that password. What happens if somebody can access it? What happens if it gets lost? Um, basically, you lose all the money you have in there. So insurance is quite expensive around that. The other thing that kind of fits right into this future story is um, everybody talks about, I want to buy Bitcoin. I want to buy Bitcoin. And they might have a reason why. There's not a lot of natural sellers in the market. There are people who speculate that the prices are too high and they're going to go down. And we talk about bubble. We talked about it earlier in the show. Is this the top? But there's nobody that naturally wants to sell it. If you compare this with um, wheat or corn, um, you have people that naturally need to buy or want to buy those things. And you have people who naturally lose money when the prices go up too much. If I'm uh, using wheat or corn to sell cereal, um, 
the price of wheat and corn directly uh, has a negative impact. If the price of Bitcoin goes to 100,000, if you're not shorting it, how are you losing money? I mean, we can argue about a couple of things around it, about the fees inside the network, but there's no natural, uh, oh, yes, it must be these guys losing money. Coming and, and you can't have a market where everybody's a winner. Uh, it just it just doesn't stack up. I mean, granted, there's scarcity and people make that argument that we are seeing a move towards digital scarcity being an asset class in a, of its own uh, variety. But as of yet, unless we're in for a new paradigm of economics that's never been witnessed before, there's something missing. It really feels that way. And I think that ultimately before everybody can come around the idea that Bitcoin has fully matured, not not even legitimization, because I think, as I said, I think we've crossed that point. But when we've matured to the point where we understand exactly what these things are good for and exactly how and where they should be used in the world, uh, we'll arrive at that point where Bitcoin isn't as volatile. It will probably still always be volatile for a lot of different weird market dynamic reasons, but it won't be necessarily as volatile as today because we'll go to offer this particular service that Bitcoin fills into, we need to pay this amount. And if it deviates from that for whatever reason, we buy or sell it. So whilst we're looking at the crystal ball, Colin, um, there's an article on Forbes from a couple of weeks ago that says five blockchain predictions that will define 2018. So um, I'm just going to blast through these and then I'll ask you to pick your, your favorite or if there are any that resonate. The first one is that there'll be more use outside of finance so we'll see probably uh, health uh, recruitment in hr legal work um fedex and um, the likes of um, supply chain obviously um is, have all been really really big uh, the second one is blockchain meets the internet of things and of course we saw the iota uh, protocols uh, i think price uh, token price jumped by more than 70 percent after an announcement where they partnered with microsoft uh, so that one's i think has the has real potential in 2018 smart contracts will come into their own um, blockchains become a uh, smart contract possible and we'll we'll get on to all things crypto kitties and why there might be some challenges there but insurers are piloting those um, to oversee complex policies state sanctioned cryptocurrencies um, project ubin obviously happened in singapore and uh, a large number of blockchain initiatives will fail which is probably my favorite because it's true any of those stand out to you what what of those would you say is right or do you have your own well i'd say five is an absolute truism um we've seen a lot of things that are uh, perhaps less thought out than one would like for the amount of money that they've raised um and we've talked a lot about tezos being kind of a, a headline failure of sorts. I mean, it may still come off, uh, wish them all the luck. Uh, but we could argue that some of these things will go down that route and it will be complicated and they won't make it through. Um, the one I really like, and, and we're going to get into it, is uh, more uses outside of finance because, honestly, this is something we've heard a lot about. I'd like to see it happen. Um, maybe it'll be around funny games and crypto kitties. Maybe that somebody will pull something out of that because that is a really interesting thing um, because, frankly, doing financial services type thing on blockchains is pretty non-inventive anymore it's interesting to me though that you can't have this subject without talking about finance because there's a token in the open source space uh, or there's a payment or there's something somewhere in in the non-open uh, source space and as a result it never quite gets the same billing or credibility as ai and machine learning um, and, and there are a lot of techies who call the whole space just like snake oil still. I can do everything here with digital signatures. Uh, so what on earth do I need this consensus stuff for? I, I completely agree. This blockchain um, initiatives will fail is is really the big one for me. Uh, I'm looking to see a lot more on smart contracts that aren't based on 
permissionless blockchains next year. As, as David Rutter uh, said in an article a couple of weeks ago, 2018 is the year of production. And I think uh, if we don't see that from some big um, closed permissioned blockchain projects, then I think they're going to be in real trouble. And I think uh, seeing failure in that space is something that is absolutely going to happen. And we're going to need to to uh, understand why those failed so that we don't repeatedly make the mistakes. The nice thing about these permissionless blockchains is when things fail, they're all out in the open and we know exactly why they failed. Um, in the permission world, it's going to be harder to decide why that has or hasn't worked. The learning that's happening right now is happening very, very quickly without question. Uh, so um, another prediction is do governments take this stuff more seriously and focus on taxes? We saw the IRS certainly are. The IRS definitely is, and I think 2018 for governments are going to focus uh, not on the blockchain and all these great things that it can do and permissioned blockchains. It'll still happen, but it won't be the story. I think the big story is really going to be around cryptocurrencies. Um, Venezuela came out and they've got uh, their own currency, but I think even more than that, looking at Bitcoin as being large enough to care about now. Mm -hmm. um, it's not there yet, but maybe another 10x from here, we could start talking about how it affects monetary policy, especially in smaller uh, economies. We could start talking about how lost tax revenue. We talked about the IRS, uh, as you said. Um, Bermuda put something out talking about a cryptocurrency tax force. Um, if you've read any of the stuff around Paradise Papers, Panama Papers, Bermuda features in them quite a lot. So the fact that they're looking into it um, may make those environments where people can go. And obviously, Switzerland and Zug is a very big center for a lot of this stuff. Um, I'd say a lot of people are probably not paying their taxes, as, as we said. Uh, and the question I'd have is, are people who are already not paying their taxes um, maybe seeing some of the regulations coming through in these former tax havens and saying, I don't want to take that risk anymore. Maybe I'll just go buy some of these Bitcoin. Entirely possible. Uh, and then what do the governments do? Uh, there was a story in Reuters as well about the UK government uh, enforcing now uh, KYC AML rules on exchanges and wallet providers and so on. Uh, and anybody custodying Bitcoin, which I thought was, was interesting that that last definition needs drilling down into some more. To me, that was largely existing regulations um, that that uh, hadn't been built specifically for Bitcoin being applied to what are effectively money service businesses and a sensible step. But the price rise has driven people to take it seriously and nation states will, will start to do that without question. And they have every reason to. Um, the ongoing saga of Bitfinex and Tether is one that we got to get into. And uh, I guess the, the I love this headline from Business Insider, anger and confusion as crypto traders lose thousands in a flash crash on a $54 billion exchange. Oh my goodness, the drama. <laughs> oh yes. Um, I, I do have to point out that losing thousands in a $54 billion exchange doesn't sound that scary though. I mean, yeah, it would suck to lose your money, especially if it's your thousands. Um, but I think overall this was this was blown out of proportion. There's been a lot of speculation around uh, Bitfinex doing things improperly. Um, there's, there's a story we're going to get into in just a second. Um, but they essentially were uh, underwent an attack, uh, DDoS, and people were not able to access it for a little while. Uh, problem with that was ultimately people had put in um, trades that could be activated if the price had moved. Um, because the exchange was off, a lot of the other people who could still access it through um, other trades or through uh, APIs without going into the website quite directly um, triggered some of those things because they thought, well, maybe this exchange has gone under. We've seen it before. Um, and there was some speculation around this particular exchange, not to say anything one way or another, whether it's true or not. Um, but there has been speculation and it did panic a lot of people. 
obviously, if you were trading something on top of it, you may have lost money when those things got hit. Because, it, yeah, exactly. It triggers a whole bunch of payments, right? It triggers a whole bunch of trades going through because of this flash crash. And you'd see in a developed exchange that they would have circuit breakers. Once something starts crashing too much and it starts looking like actually something's going wrong here systemically in the market, a big trade has, uh, has flipped over the market, some big seller has come in and sold too much, then actually there's a, a circuit breaker and it stops and then they've got time to figure out what's going on and match the trades more slowly because the algorithm hasn't worked. And I was speaking to a professional who's built a couple of exchanges and worked in uh, Wall Street for a number of years uh, earlier today. And he said, it turns out building exchanges is really hard. And, and actually, this stuff isn't just as simple as having new tech. There is a lot of lessons learned in terms of uh, how you make these things work from a business side that's valuable. And he felt like the folks at uh, these sorts of exchanges feel like they're riding high. Uh, they're making these mistakes in public, but it, it, this won't last once the institutions come in. Uh, but other stories about Bit Phoenix, they've hired a law firm to challenge some critics, which I think is interesting that you hire a law firm to challenge your critics. And of course, they and Tether broke their silence and went on a media blitz. Unpick this. Who's their critics? Why are they getting together with Tether to, Tether to break their silence? So um, there, there was a figure who, anonymous figure on Twitter, uh, has a medium, a medium blog as well. Goes by the the Twitter handle of Bitfinext. Um, obviously, coming from uh, the people that lost money in Mount Gox were said to be goxed, um, so it wasn't overly inventive. Um, has been putting out uh, a lot of different analysis and pulling stuff out of different chats uh, that going on in the cryptocurrency community, talking about how Bitfinex may not be whole. They may be missing money, um, either through theft or through loss or a lot of other things. Uh, they were hacked, uh, was it a year ago? Um, and issued credits effectively became ownership inside of Bitfinex, the company. Um, it's been challenging how these things work. And the other thing he's been challenging is if there's fake trading and if there's fake trading specifically driven by something called Tether. Yeah. Tether is uh, it's a cryptocurrency that happens inside of a semi-open um, blockchain, and it happens to be pegged to the dollar, tethered to the dollar. Um, they say that it is 100% backed by dollars in bank accounts, um, but there are a lot of people that have been having a hard time getting money out of it, uh, for various different reasons, um, and they speculated that maybe that money doesn't exist. Interesting. Let, let's unpick that, right? So let's let's just walk through that. So they have tethered these, I guess we could call them um, dollar tokens, USDT, uh, and they've said, okay, but here's a token that represents a dollar, but don't worry about it. We've got some dollars in a bank account somewhere. And there's now speculation that actually they don't. And so when somebody's come to try and withdraw their US dollars from Bitfinex, they've gone, mm, no, you can't have that yet. And so there's this now character, Bitfinex, who's walking around calling them on their stuff, and they've hired a lawyer, and they've gone on a media blitz to try and push back against that. I mean, what would be the consequences if they haven't done this? Who, would, who might they be in trouble with? So there's a lot of different consequences, whether they have done that or if they haven't done things. So um, the first, let, let's start with the second part. Um, if they are, in fact, holding money in bank accounts um, and letting people freely trade this on the internet, that could be breaking all, a lot of regulations because you don't necessarily know who has these tokens. They could be sending them anywhere um, and that they may not legally be allowed to move money in U.S. dollars if, say, they're in a, a country under sanctions like Sudan or uh, Iran or North Korea. Um, so obviously, if they're doing that things and those those particular jurisdictions are accessing it, they could be breaking laws. Now, the accusation is 
maybe the money is there, but maybe they can't access it because they have had some problems where Wells Fargo shut down their bank accounts or said they wouldn't deal with Bitfinex and Tether. Um, so they may be in Taiwanese banks um, and those banks may not know what's going on because of that, those regulations. The other thing, uh, one of the accusations is there may not be money there at all. And they may just be making this up and saying, yes, somebody sent us $100 million. So they printed US dollars effectively, which the Federal Reserve is probably not going to like. That is the accusation uh, from Bitfinex. Now, um, the law firm and Tether and Bitfinex, uh, which has a roundabout stake in Tether somehow, um, and Bitfinex has pulled us apart, have said that's absolutely false um, and they've accused Bitfinex of slander and a bunch of other things to... Yeah, and this uh, is confusing. So Bitfinex have accused an anonymous actor called Bitfinex <laughs> of slander. Yes. And that's important because as you're saying it quickly, I'm like, Bitfinex have accused Bitfinex. No, Bitfinex have accused Bitfinexed, this anonymous character of slander who has claimed that you don't really have the money, you're moving this stuff around and you could be breaking all kinds of international laws whilst you're doing it. I mean, this this could be the thing that the whole House of Cards is built on and comes tumbling down. That is that is one of the worry, and a lot of people have kind of come around and, and read what this Bitfinexed character has come out and said, um, have developed some of these ideas further, and really questioning whether uh, Bitfinex is doing things um, properly or whether they're making things up as they go along. Which is a shame because the they're one of the largest, if not the largest, um, exchange, and also this idea of having. Uh, tokens represent a currency is something that i think central banks have shown an interest in and could be done with legitimacy and of course chicago we talked about earlier as the home of innovation was the innovator behind the euro dollar market which is allowing international banks to hold dollars effectively and trade those so there's a real opportunity for financial innovation but uh if if this organization is doing it right great we can learn from them and i look forward to to hearing that out um, but let's hope these allegations get cleared up soon and we know what's happening. Um, I would upvote that. Would you? Or what are you upvoting this week? Well, uh, it, the next story we're going to get into uh, is the one that I'm all about. <laughs> mm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to upvote the story that you're about to hear about. But before we get to that, i got to tell you about Zilla. Uh, Zilla's a new ICO marketplace app, kind of like a mix between Amazon and Reddit for ICOs. You can browse through ICOs, upvote or downvote them so that good ones rise to the top. And if you like an ICO, you'll be able to participate using various tokens and credit cards with one click. You can pre-register for the limited Zilla Vita app at zla.io forward slash the bi and don't forget forward slash bi on zla.io really helps us out because then they know you were listening to us and that's why you went to the website all right colin crypto kitties crypto kitties the world has gone crazy for kitties uh everybody but likes have you seen these things they are ridiculously cute like i i found myself kind of wanting one and i know i shouldn't this is like pokemon meets horse racing meets blockchain all in one okay so what the hell are crypto kitties let's start there um if any of you are old enough to remember tamagotchi um, basically they were these little things where you had a keychain and you'd raise these weird things that would hatch out of eggs and you had to feed them and take care of them or else they would die. Um, so somebody has decided let's do that, but on a blockchain because why not? Um, and they've decided to do it with cats. It came out at, um, Ethereum Waterloo conference that happened a few months ago and it was just released last week into the main Ethereum network. Um, people started putting these things together and surprise, surprise, they started selling them for Ether. And one person sold one of these crypto kitties, an extremely rare crypto kitty. The first crypto kitty, I believe. For 117,000 US dollars. 
That is absolutely insane. Somebody like imagine selling your Tamagotchi or a po- that's like a rare ass Pokemon, like <laughs> $117,000. But isn't there something about them being unique and provably unique and provably scarce that people are buying into here as well? Exactly. So um, because they're all on this blockchain that has digital scarcity, which we talked about in, in the Bitcoin example, um, they can show that there's only one of these or 10 of these or whatever number it is. And anybody can look in and see it. Obviously, if there were forks in the blockchain, yes, you may be able to fork your kitty and have multiple kitties, but there is only one in the main chain. Don't fork your kitty, people. Don't fork your kitty. <laughs> um, this idea isn't isn't brand new. Um, there There is something called rare Pepe's, um, if you know Pepe the Frog, of yep. yes, um, that happens in something called Counterparty, which sits on top of Bitcoin. Uh, this has been going for about a six months, a year now, um, kind of started this trend of having um, unique things. And there was Spells of Genesis, which is another similar thing in Counterparty as well. They brought this into into Ethereum. But I'm really excited about it because of the way they did it. Um, so there's this fun game that happens to be taking up 17% of the Ethereum blockchain. Like, let's just pause on that. Yes. This fun game is taking up 17% of the Ethereum blockchain. What does 17% of it mean? It's taking up 17% of the transaction? The transaction volume that's happening. So a silly game about cats is taking up 17% of the Ethereum transaction volume, and the Ethereum transaction volume is, what, a couple of billion a day in value as well? Several billion a day. It's on a $44 billion network, and this thing is clogging it up. You got kitties stuck in your network. It's a real issue. A furball. <laughs> Ethereum has a furball. I think we have an episode title. Um, so the, there's the game CryptoKitties.co. Um, I encourage you, if you're listening on your phone right now, just to go to CryptoKitties.co and have a look at these things and tell me you don't find them adorable. I will tell you you don't have a soul, if that's the case. And, and Richard Crook, if you're listening, you don't have a soul. Um, there's a CryptoKittyDex.com uh, where you can see all of the ones that are an issue. But how, to get into a little bit more about how they've done it, Colin. Yeah, so um, a, in November, um, part of the Ethereum community gets together on a regular basis and they come up with something called EIPs, um, so Ethereum Improvement Protocols. Um, they start out of the Bitcoin process, BIPs or BIPs, same exact idea. Um, they issued something called an ERC721. Uh, now, uh, that sounds really boring. Um, what it really these... does. How to make something sound sexy. Give it like a three-letter acronym and some numbers. It does sound like a robot, though. It really does. Uh, but it's also, it's, its parent was ERC-20, which many of you know may know better as being the thing that basically made the token craze and the ICO craze happen. Here is an open source kind of uh, bit of software that you can take and use and deploy to the Ethereum network, and it lets you have your own token coin thing for whatever purpose. So you would give it Ether, and it returns you tokens, and then your tokens can be used to do stuff. So 721 is the new version of that. 721. So the first one, the ERC-20, which you just mentioned, allows us to have a fungible token. So I can send you any one of these 10,000 tokens, and you don't care which one. They're all the same. Uh, And you can do exactly the same things with them. This creates a non-fungible token, a unique snowflake of a token um, that happens to be a kitty in this instance. A snowflake kitty. A snowflake kitty. So your individual kitty lives out there, and you can prove that there's no other kitties like your individual snowflake of a kitty. Um, This is really exciting. Um, You know, CryptoKitties is fun. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. But it's going to change the world. Uh, and this is how it's doing it. Um, 
we're going to start seeing these things come up. And I, I personally think in 2018, it's going to completely displace, uh, ICOs inside of Ethereum. They'll still happen. Um, but we're going to be talking about what we're doing with ERC 721 contracts. A super interesting idea. And I guess that idea of something being silly. I do remember in 2007, uh, talking to some of my old bosses at the time uh, who were looking at, at the smartphones that people had, the iPhones and the HTC Desires and, and those initial touchscreens and saying, oh, I, I don't need to play games. I'm a serious business person. I'm going to hold on to my BlackBerry. CryptoKitties has that feel of like, hey, here's a touchscreen that you can play games on. But actually what's going on behind the scenes is a bit of a change that's that's really quite significant. And this idea that people are investing in it in this new token style. Um, but there's a couple of other bits and pieces to it. Um, your CryptoKitties Kitty isn't forever. Um, decentralized apps aren't as decentralized as you think, Colin. Exactly. So um, what we've seen in the Bitcoin world and in blockchains with these things getting forked, um, you can have all these issues as well inside the actual contracts that happen inside of an Ethereum um, where they can be copied and people can use them or um, they may fall over or be changed. Um, inside of CryptoKitties itself, uh, there, there are administrators that still do have more power. Um, it could be that Ethereum just disappears and we we don't know, but um, there are risks to it. Um, it isn't the same as having your uh, Tamagotchi or whatever that exists in the real world. Well, I guess the, there was a good um, Medium blog post by Luke Zhang, your crypto kitty isn't forever, why dApps aren't as decentralized as you think. And he actually does a code teardown where he basically suggests that the CEO and or person who, oh, that is an adorable crypto kitty. Um, sorry, I got completely distracted. Um that is the, the expensive cat, the first cat. That was the $115,000 crypto kitty. Um, so the CEO, effectively, or the person who wrote the code and holds the keys to the crypto kitty's contract, could switch out the cat breeding algorithm with another one that produced some more Genesis-type cats. This means that whilst it's running on a decentralized network, somebody has effectively a backdoor to the algorithm, uh, and which is an interesting thing to consider because you're buying something that's rare, but there's one person that's empowered to change that whenever they like. So it's kind of like Nintendo or even worse, EA, just launching new stuff all the time and getting you to pay for it. So yes, um, bearing in mind it is inside of a blockchain and that would be visible to everyone. So yes, they, they have the administrative right to do that. Now, I would have to imagine there would be complete anarchy in this if somebody paid $150,000 for a crypto kitty and then all of a sudden there were 100 more, they would be out lobbying against this and a lot of people would be upset that these kitties that they've been breeding are no longer worth anything because i i imagine there's entire contingents of 15 year old girls who have gone in and started building these things um because they're making money on the side it's sims for the blockchain it's that's really what it is but on that point i think this this is something else that is really cool about crypto kitties um if we talk about we talked about coin sorry producer laura was really laughing at us then from just that sentence i, I told her i was gonna be excited about crypto kitties i'm really excited about crypto kitties <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, with, with Bitcoin, you can go in, put your credit card in and Coinbase and you can have it and your Bitcoin never leaves Coinbase. So we can say, yes, we have lots of user adoption because of all these Coinbase accounts, but you're not really using Bitcoin. You've just bought them from somebody that has them. Um, these uh, crypto kitties is not that simple. You need to go in, you need to buy ether. You need to sign up and have a MetaMask, um, extension onto your browser or a browser itself you need to move money out of the exchange into that and then you need to go in and actually touch these smart contracts if you are somebody building crypto kitties you're fully enveloped now into the ethereum world 
And that is real adoption. It's not some uh, vanity metric of how many people have accounts, which they may or may not have money. People and it's are not creating it. a token for something for the sake of it. it this, uh, well, that know, we can argue about. <laughs> well, okay, fair. But the, there's, a, there's an intended purpose for them. And yes, it's getting these silly crypto kitties, but it's people are buying and selling those silly things. But then we've had an esports version of this show where people buy and sell video game uh, costumes every day for large dollar amounts. And this is big business. And it's the sort of thing that, again, I can see the crusty old executive going, it's stupid, and it sort of does feel stupid, but it's also big business, and it's legitimate business. But this is the whole thing with innovation, right? Pokemon Go was stupid, and if if a bunch of bankers or big corporate execs ever got together, they would never talk about something like CryptoKitties and how that's going to change their business model. But, you know, zoom back to when you and I started getting into this at banks, and we said, hey, you should pay attention to this Bitcoin. And they said, hey, you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how innovation happens. It happens from stupid things. And when people are laughing at it, it's generally the point where you should start paying attention. Love that soundbite. So um, a couple of stories we didn't have time to cover this week that you should pay attention to if you get the chance. There's a story on Coindesk. Uh, more devs, more destruction. Another Zcash crypto ceremony is underway. And this thing this thing reads like a novel. The Zcash ceremonies read like uh, an episode of Mr. Robot. Uh, if, if you want to go read this thing and have at it, that was fun. So more devs, more destruction on Coindesk. Um, and then BBC News said the battle against deadly fake goods goes high tech. And this is looking again, as we mentioned, some of the non-financial use cases uh, in blockchain. All right, listeners, don't forget, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered on Twitter at B Chain Insider. That's the letter B or by Chain Insider. To share your thoughts or get in touch with at Colin G Platt. Don't forget the G. Um, or at SY Taylor if you want to pick up with us personally. Otherwise, you can just drop us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain and DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects, when they're going to be real, or just have a speaker for your next event we'll hope that you're going to get in touch drop us a line at podcasts at 11fs.com now let's dive into an interview with david rutter the ceo of r3 welcome to blockchain insider i'm simon taylor from 11fs and today i'm delighted to chat to the one and only David Rutter, the CEO at R3. You guys work with banks and other financial institutions to apply distributed ledger technology. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. No, it's good for you to come on Blockchain Insider. Really appreciate it. Um, well, it's know, taken me a while to get on the show because I was—I didn't pass the cool factor for a while. But. No, like I think the pocket square, there was just something we were allergic to. No, I love the pocket square. <laughs> he actually asked me to wear a black hoodie today. but uh, You, you thought about it, though. I you did, re- yeah. Do you own a black yeah. hoodie? Yeah, if it has 11FS on it. That's yeah. the one, right? You yeah, can get the logo. I'll wear it next podcast we do. I can just see you like, going in disguise with sunglasses on somewhere. I think I look could, pretty good with it. You could walk into any conference then it'd be fine. Uh, all right. Um, so, David, let's start out. What is your background? You've been in finance for a little while. You've done a few things. Yeah. Yeah. 32 years, which is uh, quite a while. So, yeah, I came up mostly um, in the brokerage space, uh, capital markets, money markets, um, rates. Uh, my last gig was for 10 years, I was the CEO of ICAP Electronic Broking, which had two big recognizable exchanges, uh, BrokerTech, which is the largest fixing income exchange and EBS, which is the largest FX exchange. And, 
You know, that's really important as a backdrop because for over half of my career, I've been going through this frustrating task of introducing new technologies to banks. So uh, I was uniquely positioned to understand the frustrations involved uh, when I recognized the promise of blockchain a few years ago. So talk to me about that then. Like, what was it you were doing when this blockchain thing came along? It was, what, 2013 maybe? Yeah, so fortunately... Uh, and timing is everything. I had a very uh, pleasant 10 years at ICAP with a rather unpleasant two months at the end. <laughs> and so uh, Michael Spencer and I, who's a, who's a good, dear personal friend of mine, uh, and I had a, a rather uh, stark disagreement that led to my departure and a one-year garden leave, which I would recommend for everyone watching the podcast if you can get away with it. Uh, I use the one year pretty wisely because I'm not one to, to sit around and... Uh, and, and I don't know what they say, smell the coffee or something. Smell the roses. Smell I think. the roses, drink the coffee. Whatever. I don't know. I'm sure but, there's a cliche in there. Yeah, yeah, there's got to be one. Um, anyway, so, so, uh, the timing was, was, was great and, uh, decided to set up my own business, maybe because, you know, no one else wanted to hire me <laughs> and, uh, started a little broker dealer called Liquidity Edge and U.S. Treasuries actually before I started R3 and it's doing, doing very well, fortunately. And then, um, you know, started R3 and began to look at this new technology called Bitcoin. All got started pretty quickly. And then you met some interesting people like Richard Brown and others who've become pillars now, I think, of the uh, the whole blockchain space. What were your first insights? What were your early lessons as you looked at the blockchain space? Okay, so let me correct one thing. I didn't meet guys like Richard Brown. I sought after them. Ooh. Okay, so so what happened was, uh, and, and, you know, my family won't watch this because they've heard the story so many times. But uh, one of the things I uh, I wanted to do was a lot of people said, okay, you've been introducing new technologies. You know the space pretty well. You should go out and start a fintech fund. But, you know, at my age, you raise your first funds, maybe $50 million. In five years, you find out you're good at it or you're not. And if you're not, you've wasted a lot of time. Plus, I'm an operational guy at the end of the day. I'm not particularly good at, at picking investments necessarily. Uh, so I decided to play with my own money. Um, my two first partners, I brought on uh, Todd McDonald and, and Jesse Edwards. And the three of us sat in a very uh, small room and uh, began to look at uh, technology investments. Went out in you know, 2013 or 14 uh, to, to the West Coast to meet all these Bitcoin companies and you know, I'm going to cut this story very short because there's the two-day version and the, and the really short version. The bottom line is uh, it reminded me of 98, 99, 2000 when, when firms with rather shallow business plans were raising tons of money. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to invest. We did a few investments. Actually, interestingly, DA Holdings in something that's now called Veeam. Um, I can't remember what Veeam's original name was. And, and did a bunch of a few other non-blockchain uh, investments as well. But, you know, it just dawned on me that... Um, there was a bunch of folks that were raising a lot of money to go out and destroy DTCC and make JP Morgan an afterthought and all with really a, a underappreciation of how deep the foundations of finance run. And uh, while the technology really intrigued me, you know, I grew up in a market where everything was about trust. As a 20-some-year-old kid, I was closing billion-dollar Fed funds transactions and confirming them the following day. So, so the proof-of-work concept... Uh, you know, and, and, and the need for, for the trustless, um, you know, part of that just never registered with me, but I recognize that the, you know, cryptographic proofs and other 
approaches and the brilliance that emanated from that could help us achieve a goal that we had for many years on Wall Street, which was to take non-differentiating, non-proprietary back office services that everyone's paying for, right? Doesn't distinguish you at all, move them to the cloud and share the expense. So I started with a very high level concept of, hey, we can use these maths, hire some really brilliant people and create something really amazing. I didn't know what something was, which actually played to my advantage. It's one of the reasons I, I didn't raise money early and I went with the membership thing. But get back to your original question, because I do have a tendency to, dri- <laughs> I love to, to, to drift a little bit because um, I'm passionate about the story, is that I didn't know much about Bitcoin and blockchain. So I said, just like you're a big voice in the, in the field now, I just asked Jesse and Todd to look at who the big names were. And I think it was Todd that said, you know, there's this geezer Richard Brown that writes a really smart blog. And, you know, I reached out to him and said, you don't know me, but I promise you I'm someone special, at least in my own mind. (laughs) I know a bit about finance and uh, you're at IBM. Come on, um, let's have a chat. And and I, I, I call it a romance because I... I basically met Richard for six or eight months on a very regular basis trying to convince him that I had the greatest idea in the world, but I didn't really know what it was. Richard is probably one of the most risk-averse people I've ever met. God bless him. But he's also one of the most uh, painfully, uh, like intelligent in how he will construct a conversation and a sentence and how he will think about a problem. I remember the early days of... It's all- funny when you say that. I agree 100%. I find both Richard both intelligent and at times painful. Uh-huh. And when he watches this, he'll know what I'm talking about because he does like to challenge he challenges Everybody's everything. Yeah. I remember yeah. the early days of all three. Sometimes but... a CEO shouldn't be challenged, though, if you know what I mean. So oh, no, no. It's, it's clearly a benign dictatorship, <laughs> clearly. Uh, but I remember the early days of all three, there was Richard's worry wall, like things that yeah. could can make everything go wrong. And he, yeah. he really does think through consequences of stuff in a way that people didn't. And challenged some of the perceptions, I think, that were out there. Bitcoin was the dominant and still is the dominant cryptocurrency. A lot of people still associate what the whole blockchain DLT space is about with being very similar to Bitcoin's technology or Ethereum's technology. But you guys challenged some of that convention. So fast forward a little bit. Talk to me about the founding of R3, uh, the membership model, and then what happened next? Yeah, okay. So I came back from that trip and went out to a bunch of different banks and said, guys, you really have to pay attention to this. It was the early days. And I, I should get my dates right. So I think it was in September 2014, we had our first round table. And then we had another one in December in California, 2014, that I remember. And I like, I hate roundtables. I know I see you at conferences sometimes, but you know, that's not my place. You know, I, yeah. I just kind of feel. You're more of a conversational uh, guy. Yeah. And, and, and so, so we hosted and paid for these roundtables. I, I used my own money to fund the uh, organization in the early days. I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to do that. And we really started with kind of the education piece. And, and a lot of banks, you know, Barclays and UBS were early adopters, CBA. They're doing their own experiments, but there was no coordination. And, and my early pitch was, and at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a salesman with a vision, was that, guys, what we're ultimately trying to do is share these expenses for middle office processing. Instead of having you guys all go through a three to five year painful process of discovery and learning about blockchain. Let's, let's begin to kind of coordinate everybody's efforts. Let's accelerate it and save a lot of expense. This was a core concept, right? We all have the same middle and back office costs. We're all doing lots of manual things with paper and like people when it could be automated, but 
everybody's system is kind of a black box. And as Richard likes to say, like the big problem is at the end of the day, we've all got to reconcile our accounts. I've got to know that you've paid me and you've, and I've paid you, but I can't see inside your black box and you can't see in my black box. So how do we solve that? Right. Right. And that's, and, and so, and that's a big driver for R3, which is to get the plumbing in place to lower expenses, to automate a lot of the infrastructure to, to, uh, to, to support innovation uh, at a rate that's much greater than, than anything we've seen before. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk uh, about that. But getting back to the story. So, um, anyway, we had our last one. Well, in December, I remember I closed the doors. We had an eight hour session. It was glass doors. There was a bar on the other side. And I turned to a bunch of bankers and I said, I'm paying for this. You're allowed to swear on podcasts? Yes, you are. I'm paying for this shit or something like that. Could have even been worse. <laughs> and uh, I said, so, and you guys have a lot more money than I do, so reach in your pockets and let's go. <laughs> and that led into a conversation about, okay, you know, naturally, what are you going to solve for us? You know, on Wall Street, we're very accustomed to kind of, you know, things fitting into a definition or, you know, a predefined structure. Well, it was like a um, use case. Like, we, I remember you saying know. early on, it, the Wall Street guys want the use yeah. case and the technology guys want the platform. And you were kind of like fighting the two sides. Yeah. And, and also I had been, uh, you know, in the market long enough and experienced enough to know that um, it was too early in the technology cycle to really understand what we could solve. But like, it didn't matter. Some of the banks were like, you know, we don't really care. Just just say you're going to solve whatever, syndicated loans, that sounds good, or securities clearing and we'll get behind you. But I refused to do that. Um, but I also refused to continue to pay. And we were doing some great work. I hired some very smart people. We were producing very good content. We started to run some POCs to prove the uh, you know, to, to, to prove the technology, no one could deny that there were some real economies, uh, in, in, in sharing everybody's experiment results. In order to do that sounds easy, but in order to do that, you have to think through your IP structure. You have to have antitrust. contracts with everybody. The antitrust piece was, was key. We had antitrust counsel with us every step along the way. Every meeting that we had, we, we start with our anti, even my board meetings now start with an annoying, you know, three to five minute, uh, antitrust reminder. So we had put all that into place and we're doing some really good work for the guys. And I stubbornly said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fall into your predefinition of, of what I should do to go raise a series A for, you know, three, three million bucks from a dozen of you guys. Um, so I came up with this membership model, um, with the guys from Goldman who were kind of, you know, and J- interestingly, Goldman and JP Morgan were kind of two of the very, very, uh, early guys involved in the thinking. And what was amazing by the time it was all done, I mean, you know, the story we had, I think nine on announcement, 12 a few days later, within, uh, 40 days, we had 42 members. Um, and they were, they were paying, um, it was, it was between 250,000 and 500,000. Uh, and then we, we closed the membership. We opened it again the following year. Now, if you take a look at our, our, our partners and everything else, we're at like 170 members. We have a bunch of regulators, central banks involved and everything else. So, so it's been amazing, uh, to watch. And then, of course, we did the Series A and we raised, uh, 107 million, was it? 107 million. Yeah. It's, it's That's a not very, a small amount of money. no. And it's a very engineered, uh, it was a very engineered number. We, it was a very difficult 10 month negotiation. I wouldn't recommend it for anyone. <laughs> To try to negotiate with 44 banks to do a deal. And, and so I had done, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm experienced in this stuff. I've done, uh, I was involved in four consortiums before. Um, 
R3 is not a consortium. It's a massive, um, uh, you know, collaboration or network of investors. Because there's a few bits to it, right? So talk me through R3 and then get me to Corda. Because I think there's, yeah, from the outside, it looks like one thing. But from the inside, it's it's several different things. So so what are the bits of it? There's the collaboration piece. There's the platform piece. There's a few other bits and pieces as well. Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll tell you how the company's broken down. But real quickly, just to finish uh, the round on the 107 million, that was for members only. And we were prescriptive about investment amounts in part to make sure that we had balance between Europe, Asia, and the U.S., uh, but also to make sure that our board and everything else allowed us to operate like an enterprise software company, which is what we are, which we had to be able to make decisions quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we couldn't worry about whether we were going to impact or even potentially destroy uh, one of our investors' businesses. So anyway, so we were very careful, but that's one of the reasons it took 10 months and almost blew up about a half a dozen times. So fast forward to where we are today. I mean, I feel ridiculously blessed in that we've hired, uh, you know, amazing people. We have, uh, I think, one of the best engineering teams in the space. We've talked about Richard Gendel Brown, but, you know, I, I often call James Carlisle, who you know well, my MVP. He is just a solid, you know, grinding uh, nothing flash, get stuff done. And then, there, and then there's Mike Kern, you know, the, the magician who, uh, you know, uh, who I think those three create this ridiculous balance. Other smart people. It's the big three that him. you build a team around, right? Yeah. And the team, you need those team players who can make sure that the vision of these three people is executed and delivered against. And that's a massive organizational effort. Yeah. And it's also, I've never seen three guys work so well together. You know, um, they have differing views. We, we all argue regularly. I meet with all my teams, including the platform team, uh, every two weeks. You know, you know me, I like to dive into the code a little bit. Yeah, yeah no, your engineering skills, man. Just, yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. But the platform that you're talking about is called Corda. Yeah, yeah. So that was our strategic vision. The story on that really quickly, the story behind everything is in September, in 2015, uh, September 2015, when we first raised our money, uh, we decided that we just wanted to deliver a solution that worked for banks. I mean, the mission was, was, was clear from the start and that helped us. You know, we, we wanted to, it's a massive mission. We want to kind of, uh, you know, build an open source platform, build an open source platform to kind of recreate, be the operating system for the future of finance, you know, so that every finance, so it's a, it's a massive ambitious plan, but it's, but it's still, you know, uh, some, somewhat focused. Um, so anyway, Corda, we started in 2015 and we split our groups into two and we worked with our banks and our members. You know, one of the things that we've been talking about, we don't talk about enough is we probably had, a, well, I know we've had over 1,500 people contribute IP and work product and get involved. We had architectural working groups. I mean, you were involved in some of these things when you were at Barclays. We sought your advice regularly. So we, we did a very good job of kind of collecting people's views. We split the team in two. We had this mantra, adopt, adapt, or build. We picked, I think, March 15th, 2016 to make Make a decision. So adopt or adapt were we looked at Ethereum, we looked at Fabric, we looked at Sawtooth Lake, we looked at everything else out there. So that stream worked to see if we could adopt any of those uh, technologies to meet the specific requirements we were looking uh, for. And in parallel, we began with a whiteboard and said everything based on what we know, how would we build this? And that became Corda. In March, we got there and we said, we, we, you know, we weren't looking to spend a ton of money in building a technology, but in March 2016, we decided that we had to build. And we did that in conjunction. It became Corda. It's a unique platform. I think that 
the design choices we made back then are paying some real dividends now. So just to, just to name a couple, the fact that, you know, it is not a blockchain where all data is broadcast to all all parties is completely permissionable. We can support consensus mechanisms of just about any kind, mm-hmm. uh, including, you know, Bitcoin if you wanted to run it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we also chose, uh, computer languages like the Java, you know, we're using Java virtual machine, the databases we use and everything else were technologies that were proven, not as cool, but when you're, when you're doing high value transactions of, uh, billions a day. My old platforms on a good day would do over a trillion dollars a day. You got to use proven technologies. You got to get past the risk officers and the banks. And so I look at the problems that Coinbase have been having and Kraken have been having and several others just competing with the demand that they've got for Bitcoin today, which is very small by contrast to global markets. Yeah, and, and then some of the choices that they've had to make about uh, languages and you know Ethereum, for those who don't know, is built on a new language that they created specifically yes. for Ethereum on a technology that broadcasts every transaction to everybody. And you guys said, well, actually, if we didn't do that, we could do something that maybe works faster, that may be more reliable, and we could use languages that the developers inside these organizations already understand. Exactly. They don't have to retrain that sort of stuff. But doesn't that risk then just building like a faster horse? Have you missed the revolution or are you do are you solving the problem? No, no, I mean we very much think that we're solving the problem. This gets back to something I said at the very beginning of of this podcast. I had, you know, grinding my teeth on introducing new technologies to banks. It's really, really hard. And you mentioned Ethereum, like we have guys that love Ethereum. Uh and but but the idea of practically installing something that relies on things called solidity and even with with quorum we think zero knowledge proofs are cool but you know there's some combination of geth and go all stuff you know a lot better than i do it's just really hard to get those languages that are that are not proven you know into mission critical systems in banks which which people should be happy about because you know this is where your money sits and where your 401k or retirement funds or whatever are held. So, so Simon, look, I, we can do, uh, so many things. What we tried to do is build maximum flexibility into the systems. What we recognize is there's a very different market when you look at trying to solve, say, interest rate derivatives for big banks or, or, uh, you know, private wealth solutions or retail banks, like the digital banking stuff that you're looking on, which would be more retail. Mm-hmm. You, you, you wouldn't, you don't want one size doesn't fit all. You might have, very, very different consensus mechanisms for those. There's bespoke products and highly illiquid uh, fixed income securities and the like where any sort of data leakage is ridiculously damaging. So really what we did is we, we designed something here that we think is amazing for high value finance. Uh, interestingly, uh, others, because our security and privacy, as you know, is best you can you can get are, you know, we've been approached by a lot of medical records and medical uh, companies. And, you know, we're trying to stick to our knitting, but a lot of people are building on Corda open source now. So that's the thing, right? So Corda is an open source platform. You've got the R3 brand and website, but you've also got Corda as the platform. So yes. there's Corda.net and people can go there and they can use the platform, I assume. They can do whatever they like with sure, it. Sure, so, sure. So how do you guys make money if the platform is open source? Well, we, we have an enterprise version coming out um, in in January, which comes with a support package that would be a requirement for, you know, for our banks and financial institutions and large corporates and the like. And that's how we make money. On Corda Open Source, you can download it and build whatever you want on it. Um, when you talk about, High value finance. Um, 
having an open source product is important and, and, and our core will always be open source. But, um, these institutions also want, you know, help desk support. They want to make sure that there's the network diagnostics and the operations center and everything else to support the transactions. The coders only have a 10% of it for these guys. There's, yeah, there's everything that comes with it. And that's what we, uh, you know, that, that, that's where we make our money. That makes complete sense. So, uh, You've done a couple of interesting projects. You guys make the headlines every week, it seems. Stuff in trade finance with Hong Kong and Singapore. The one that caught my attention was a project called Project Ubin. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. And then and for those that are interested, it's all been open. Actually, the, the code for that was open sourced as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a, it's an amazing project. Firstly, we have a, an incredible relationship with, with Singapore and MAS. I'm on their ITAP. Um, <clears throat> committee, their advisory committee, um, that fintech festival they throw is absolutely amazing, as you know. Um, anyway, they, uh, they're very progressive in their thinking about, uh, seeing dollars on ledger, about, you know, fixed income securities on ledger and the works. So we, we've had a number of public projects with the central banks around the world, and we've had a few private ones. Um, so I can talk to the public ones. It started with, with Jasper, with the work we've done with uh, Bank of Canada. Th- that work has, has been published. I think a new paper just came out from Bank of Canada. And then with MAS, we started looking at their uh, real-time growth settlement systems. Uh, and then that project, you know, evolved beyond that. But uh, what was interesting is that they, they laid out quite a challenge and they had all, you know, three platform technologies. So you had uh, Hyperledger Fabric, yes. you had, uh, I guess... I call it IBM Hyperledger Fabric. <laughs> and then the uh, Enterprise Ethereum. And those, yeah. And then, I get, which I guess was... Enterprise the, Ethereum with Quorum with on top, Quorum. I think led by JP Morgan, as, yeah. you, as you would expect, and then and then Corda. Yes. And, and Accenture ran the project and it was a sprint, it required a lot of resources. I mean, even though we have a lot of money, we still are a small company, we're only 150 people, we we punch way above our weight because we leverage our membership. So, and we leverage our massive partner network, including folks like uh, folks like you. But uh, it was a considerable amount of work, and we built some really cool stuff, including a continuous net settlement system that recognizes um, netting opportunities while payments are in flight. So we're spending more time and money on this. But what's really cool about it is MAS and Accenture made it clear that they weren't going to pick a winner, even though it's really clear if you read the paper that quarter won. <laughs> so, but, but you should read but it But you're not No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just stating the facts uh, as I know them. And, and the paper's available. But, but look, as you know, when you're talking about something like that, um, the design choices we talked about earlier of being permissionable, we start with point to point, but we can support just about anything has helped us because other blockchains, which are built on broadcast all things to all parties, have to lay filters on top. And I and, you know, you know more about this than I do. But the channels filter that the IBM and Hyperledger folks uh, uh, picked for for fabric has some severe limitations when you're talking about many different channels. And I think that came out in the Swift report because I don't want to pick on anyone. I respect my competitors. And then Ethereum with uh, JP Morgan that is, is using, you know, the Quorum and Constellation and trying to add some zero-knowledge proofs, which, by the way, we're really excited about zero-knowledge proofs. It's really early on, but the way we build our technology, as soon as it's ready for prime time, we just incorporate it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's easier for us to do that because of these design choices that we make. So you started with things that you know are robust, and then you're working kind of from there. So talk to me about the future. What happens next with you guys? Uh, does Corda become something that is rolling out? When is it going live? I saw a great interview with you. Uh, I think it was at, at the Singapore FinTech Festival that well, there was a quote where you said, if 
you're not in production by 2018, that's going to be a problem. Why did you say that? Okay, so if we talked nine months ago and we talked about what is strategically most important to R3, I would tell you that quarter, quarter, quarter. Okay. Now I'm very happy that we are on the right path. We have uh, a de de defined path that we've communicated very well to the community of what you can expect in enterprise and beyond. Uh, so that's that's going very, very well. Remember, my background is running these exchanges, and there's, an, there's an, a massive underappreciation for the support model that has to go with that. So we've done a number of live uh, transactions in Pilot. But pilot's easy. When you get into production, you know, you have to uh, be able to make sure that you have secure contracts that are worth uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. So uh, that for us has been called R3Net. Uh, we're probably going to rebrand it Corda uh, Connect. Uh, but the idea is we're the big strategic imperative for us now is thinking about the production state. A lot of folks talk uh, cheaply about interoperability as if it's something you can just snap your fingers. What we're trying to do is on top of our platform is encourage core app developers to, to build their own software and to deploy their own business networks. What we want to make sure is that the hundreds and thousands of business networks that sit on top of and rely on the Corda platform can all communicate with each other in a manner where you can pass contracts, whether they're fixed income, natural gas, or even cash from one business network to another and get, you know, cryptographic proof to do it in atomic settlement, delivery versus payment, and make sure that that, that happens well. So, so we're kind of focusing on our own interoperability within our own ecosystem, and then maybe we'll look beyond that at some point. Great quote I heard from a professional in this space a little while ago, which is, in DLT, we risk recreating the maze because there are so many different platforms, so many different versions, so many different companies chasing the rabbit down the hole at the yeah, moment, yeah. that unless we think through that from the start, it's really kind of could, could all go horribly wrong. I mean, I spoke to Scott O'Malia recently at ISDA and then Commissioner Brian Quintez from the CFTC about some standards. So I was really interested to read about smart contract templates. Can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about how you're thinking about how your members and how other organizations outside of your membership can take advantage of that? Yeah. So let me, I can't miss the opportunity. You've just kind of maybe unintentionally laid in my lap. One of the things I find exhausting is that uh, there's a quote from from the, the CEO from RBS when he took over saying, you know, it's I've just taken out of a bank with like 5,000 distinct systems. Okay. So if you're in our field, you, you know, the, the way the systems that support banks were built and most of them at the core still sits COBOL and Fortran, but you know, they just were built incrementally. It's like support. sedimentary rock, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But just to support what's the latest business that's come in, let's figure out how to tie it in. So you have all these APIs and inefficiencies and all these kind of, you know, little apps to, to, to support big businesses. But no one ever had the time or the money, uh, nor would t undertake the risk to rethink it all. So we have an opportunity to rethink it all. What I find exhausting, even from my own members and from my investors, is the mere fact that they wouldn't, and I think they will, I think this has already happened. There's three platforms out there, let's face it. You know, there's the Ethereum community, they're amazing. Uh, there's the Hyperledger group with building on top of the IBM fabric, and there's Corda. Then there's proprietary solutions. You know, the last thing we want is to recreate a future that looks like the past. We don't want 100 proprietary solutions and try to figure out how to make them all interoperate. As a matter of fact, over time, what they're realizing, this is already happening. I can't 
speak specifically to the firms, those that have proprietary stacks are saying, okay, guess what? R3 is true to their name. They are, they're a platform company only. They're not building uh, top of stack apps. They are empowering to my business. They are not a threat to my business anymore. So we are already seeing this uh, convergence, but I think that I'm not a believer in proprietary solutions. There's some amazing companies out there doing amazing things. I think that they migrate to one of the platforms uh, uh, over time, and that's how we solve interoperability. And yes, even then, you need standards, and we're very supportive of that. We work very closely. Uh, Scott's a personal friend. We work closely with ISDA. Um, we have uh, increasing, thankfully, increasing dialogue with Swift over over standards, and we recognize their position. Um, you know, I regularly talk another good friend of mine is David Puth, CEO of CLS. You know, we're talking with them regularly. So, you know, our, our ambition is to really create a very efficient future. The efficient future does not involve, uh, 20 proprietary stacks with a bunch of recreating the maze. Exactly. That's, that's going to be a challenge. So, um, we're at the end of our time, David. I, I hate to say. No. We're yeah, just we, getting started. Simon. I know you were just getting warmed up. I can you feel you. You me back with the black hoodie. Yes. You uh, promise. Uh, only if there is a black hoodie. That, if there's no, no it has one. to have 11 FS on one side and we'll get, you know, my people will make it. It will, we, yeah, it will make it the budget. <laughs> my people will talk to your people. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, we'll, we'll do it. I'm just kidding. Uh, so last, I gotta ask, where can people find out more about you, Corda, R3? I'm not that interesting. So don't spend time on me, but go to our, you know, go to uh, our R3 uh, website. Uh, you mentioned Corda.net is another great place. Um, look, we're here. Uh, you know, one point I want to highlight, just a final point. We do want to empower, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurs to, to build applications and we can help you deploy to the, these major financial firms because you can't even get vendor approval if you're a small firm. But if you build on Corda, we're really building out a suite of tools that will help these uh, organizations be able to deploy their applications and make a big difference. So get in touch with us and we'll have our dev relations people talk to you. And, and So this is the there. thing that surprises me is you guys have a dev relations team. You have an open source code base. Developers who want to make finance different, better, more efficient, more transparent. And have a chance to succeed. To be, and I don't mean that to be cruel, but if you're not a well-financed, recognized organization, no large bank or or infrastructure do what DTCC did with Exony. Exony is a fine firm, but they wanted the IBM wrapper. So, you know, if you want to get that done, we think we can provide that that service and the confidence for the banks to be able to buy your software. So we really encourage you to develop on top of Corda and we're here to uh, to service you and to work with you. David, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. And that was the interview with Mr. David Russer. A big thank you to him and, of course, to my co-host GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. Thank you very much for your Crypto Kitty enthusiasm. Oh, man, I'm so excited about kitties. Uh, I, I, you've bought one, haven't you? Go on. <laughs> Didn't buy bread. <laughs> uh, you've bred a Crypto Kitty. This makes so much... Now I get the enthusiasm. Traders going to trade, trade, trade. Uh, <laughs> They're also going to breed cats. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes about CryptoKitties. Those reviews help us so much. And spread the word. Uh, tell all your friends and colleagues to listen too. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. Wow, a sentient crypto kitty <laughs> that can take custody of its own assets. And, and buys other kitties. <laughs> oh my god, a kitty, a kitty army. <laughs> we'll have a kitty pimp. <laughs> <laughs>
No, people are actually doing that. Like, they're getting paid to breed their crypto kitties with other crypto kitties. So, yeah, this was what um, this is what Tom was saying. Is he put his kitty out to stud? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, Tom that works at eleven. Yeah. He's put his crypto kitty out to stud and has made some money on it. <laughs> yeah. Pimpyourkitty.com. Cat in a moon suit. <laughs> Cat in a moon suit. Look at them. Look at them. Look at them. 